Now, our next study in Mark's Gospel is found in Mark chapter 10, and we're beginning to read at verse 28 through to verse 34. So Mark chapter 10, please, uh, verse 28. And the title I've chosen for this message is You Can't Lose. Verse 28 then of Mark chapter 10. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. Having witnessed the rich young ruler going away sad because he was very rich. And having heard the Lord's subsequent explanation of the matter, that, if you look at verse 23, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. And verse 25, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. The disciples appear to have concluded that they may have succeeded where the rich young man had failed. Peter, again, acting as a spokesman for the twelve, says in verse 28, Lo, or behold, look, we have left all and have followed thee. Now, that was true in a sense, because Peter and John had left a lucrative fishing business to follow the Lord Jesus. And Matthew uh, the tax collector had left a rich source of income at the seat of custom. And so uh, Peter appeals to the Lord, we have left all and followed thee. Now, what was behind that statement of Peter's? I want you to think about that for a moment because uh, it's important that we don't uh, take it at superficial level and uh, we understand the motivation for the apostle in asking this question. Now, we might answer, well, the motivation of him in saying this was sincerity. He, he truly felt that he had given up all for the Lord Jesus. And he was just exclaiming that in the light of what had happened, the rich young ruler walking away sad, not willing to give up all his riches for the Lord Jesus. But let me ask you a question if you perhaps perceive that that was his motivation. If you were sincere in giving up everything for the Lord Jesus Christ, would you say it the way Peter did here in verse 28? Behold, lo, everyone look, we have left all. I don't think you would. And in fact, in Matthew 19 and 27, we have Peter's words in the same context as this. But uh, Matthew records a little bit more for us, and he says that Peter said, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And so there seems to be a sort of selfish motivation here with Peter. I don't think it's sincerity 
that is behind this statement. Maybe it was smugness. It was as if Peter was saying, well, we have done what the rich man could not do. Or we have arrived. We've given up all and followed you. That may well be the motivation. Maybe also he was seeking affirmation. He was looking to the Lord and and saying, Lord, aren't we special for what we have been able to give up to follow you? And maybe he wanted the Lord to sort of give him a spiritual pat on the back. Or perhaps finally, and there may be other uh, suggestions, but uh, mine finally is that there was a tone of sacrificial self-pity in Peter's statement. It's as if he's saying, Lord, we, we have sacrificed a lot for you. Lord, look at what we have given up for you. The rich man, man couldn't do it, but, but look at what we have given up for you. Now, some might say it, it might be a combination of all these factors, sincerity, smugness, uh, self-affirmation, um, sacrificial self-pity, but I happen to favor the latter. This really was self-pity. And this is borne out by what Matthew records, that Peter's motivation is, Lord, what will we get out of this? And perhaps Peter may well have been thinking that the rich young ruler seemed to be a little bit better off than they were with all his riches and his position in life. And yet they had given up everything for the master and he's asking, what do we get out of it? Now, if this is the case, and I believe it is, we have to say that Peter, speaking on behalf of the twelve, is articulating the fact that the twelve have missed the point again, the point that the Lord Jesus was trying to teach them. Because you remember from our previous study, the rich young ruler, that the point of the incident with the rich young ruler was that the Lord did not want that young man's goodness, but he wanted him to admit his badness. He wanted him to bring to him his self-righteousness and his love of riches. And Christ wanted his brokenness. And then Christ would do what was impossible for the young man to do himself, who, remember, was obsessed with what he could do. Look at verse 17, just to remind yourself. He came to the Lord Jesus, good master, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? And the Lord wanted him to realize he couldn't do anything. Could it be that the disciples had fallen into the same trap as the rich young ruler? We have done, they are thinking, we have done this terribly difficult thing. What difficult thing? What would the Lord ask the rich young ruler? Verse 21, Jesus beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. The disciples through Peter are saying, we have done this. Again, I think they are missing the wood for the trees because we've got to understand that the Lord here is not interested with the specifics of what the disciples were giving up for him. And he's not interested with the specifics of what we give up for him. The lesson of the rich young ruler is that he wants our brokenness first. He wants us to give up our own self-righteousness and he wants effectively us to give up ourselves to him. 
That's what the Lord wanted the rich young ruler to do. He wasn't interested in his riches, and he's not specifically interested only in our riches, or your house, or your land, or whatever you have to offer. What the Lord is saying to us through these passages is, My son, give me thine heart. I want you, and all of you. Now, when I thought about this, and I feel that this is the real crux of the message, I was reminded of the example of the churches of Macedonia who'd given liberally to, uh, to, to, to those saints of God who were so needy. And it says in 2 Corinthians 8 that they gave out of their poverty. So they hadn't got much to give, give but even out of poverty, they gave liberally. And the reason it seems that they were readily able to make apparently great sacrifices was simply because they had given their hearts to the Lord first. He had all of them. And that's what Second Corinthians 8 verse 5 says in this regard. But first, gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. They had already given up themselves in brokenness to the Lord. So any other sacrifice or thing that was asked of them was nothing in comparison to their initial surrender. Now read again verse 28 in the light of what we've just said. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, behold, look, we have left all and have followed thee. Do you not hear the self-pitying tone? You see, I think Peter and the disciples had yet to learn. If you have given up on yourself, and given your broken self to the Lord. And here is the message today. There are no real sacrifices when you have given up yourself to the Lord Jesus. You see, there's no real sacrifices when you must give up things for Jesus. That's what this is teaching, verse 29 and thirdly, verily, Jesus responds, I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time uh, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. See, what the Lord is really responding with is again the message of the cross. This is the gospel of the cross. This gospel of the suffering servant. And he's teaching them again the way of the cross. And of course that's what he ends uh, on in, in this passage. Verse 32 uh, through to 34. Let us read that as well. And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus went before them and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. And he took Again, the twelve, and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles, and they shall mock him, and shall scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. Again, the Lord's point is always that glory is through the shame of the cross. And he had taught them this, had he not, regarding discipleship. Mark 8, 34. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And now in verse 
32 to 34, we have the third major prophecy of Christ's passion. The first one was in 8 and 31, and the second in 9 and 31. And now here, now this is the most precise mentions Jerusalem, that this would be accomplished in Jerusalem. And note, please, that it mentions Christ's going before them into Jerusalem. And, and this going before is something that's unique to Mark's gospel. He is depicted as the leader of his people in suffering. He's going before them. He's taking his cross. That's born out in Mark 8. He speaks first of all of his cross, then of their cross. And now he's leading into Jerusalem to die on a cross and they will follow him there. He's the leader of his suffering people. And Mark bears this out not only in relation to the suffering of the Lord, but he leads us as saints of God into glory. At the end of the book in chapter 16 and verse 7, the angel told the disciples, after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There he is going before into glory. There you shall see him as he said unto you. And so, if he goes before us into suffering, and the suffering comes before the glory, if we want glory, his glory, we must follow his lead in the way of the cross. It is the Calvary road constantly that our Lord Jesus is teaching us here. And so, Peter's answer is, there are no real sacrifices when you must give up things for Jesus. If you've already given up your heart to him, and this is what Paul bore out. Who could ever say Paul's message is different than the Lord Jesus? In Philippians chapter 3, 7 and 8, he says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but dung, that I might win Christ. And again, Galatians 2 and 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so what I'm saying to you is that the answer of the Lord Jesus coming back was implying, if nothing else, that if I have died with Christ, then self-pity has died too. You see, dead people don't have rights. Dead people don't feel pain or loss. Dead people don't own anything. And if I've been crucified, I am dead to myself, and he has my heart. So if I am nothing, and I own nothing, and if I own nothing, I can lose nothing. So there are no real sacrifices when you must give up things for Jesus if you've already given up your heart to him. Are you getting the message? C.T. Studd got this message. He was born to a rich inheritance in his family. He had a brilliant career as a cricketer and his story tells us that he gave it up all of it up, and uh, summed up that apparent sacrifice in these words, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. You see, no sacrifice could be too great for C.T. Studd because 
the Lord already had his heart. Jim Elliot was of the same spirit. He would die a martyr at the hands of the Auk Indians as a very young man, but he had given his heart to the Lord long before that moment of martyrdom, and that was the secret to his life. He said, summing up all that he was and did, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. David Livingstone of Africa graduated as a medical doctor from Edinburgh University, but he was determined to do something for God and he wanted to work at some place in the world where there was great need. So he went to Africa and we know from his story that he opened up new roads into what was called the Dark Continent. He said, these words I'm quoting, I am willing to go anywhere provided it be forward. So he did. He went forward to Africa. And Livingstone said early in his missionary career, I will place no value on anything I have or may possess except in its relation to the kingdom of God. Anything I have will be given or kept according as giving or keeping it shall most promote the kingdom of my Savior. He began his work that ultimately extended 32 years in total entirely dedicated to the, the continent of Africa. The first 12 years or so were in missionary travels, and the remainder of those 32 years were unveiling the unknown interior of Africa, where his geographical discoveries placed him at the pinnacle of exploration and achievement. On his last trip to Scotland, the University of Edinburgh conferred a, an honorary degree upon him. Now, in Scottish universities, Whenever there was a recipient of an honorary degree, there was a custom that the recipient was basically fair sport, fair game uh, for the rest of the student body as he received his award. And the, uh, the recipient would have to run the gauntlet of all their raucous remarks. They would taunt them and shout ridiculing them, sometimes with very lurid remarks and criticism, simply because the person receiving the honorary doctorate had not worked to earn their degree. And so on the day that David Livingstone was about to receive this honorary award, many wondered what the reaction of the student body would be. Do you know what the students did that day? They stood silent in an ovation of respect to this man. And there, I want you to picture it in your mind's eye, Livingstone stood, one arm hanging at his side, his shoulder had been torn by a lion in the forests of Africa. There he stood, his skin like leather because the sun had completely destroyed it. And the students standing in silence, Livingstone was heard to say these words. Shall I tell you what supported me through all these years of exile among a people whose language I could not understand and whose attitudes toward me was always uncertain and often hostile? It was this. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. People talk, he went on. Now, I want you to hear this. Mark it well. People talk of sacrifice that I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owing to our God, which can never repay is that a sacrifice which brings its own best reward and healthful activity 
the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter. Away with the word sacrifice in such a view and with such a thought. It was emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it was a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering or danger now and then with the foregoing of common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to savor and soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not to talk when we remember the great sacrifice which he made who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. Silence hung that day in the air in the McEwen Hall in Edinburgh University. To this day, even Livingstone's name is revered among a great many inhabitants across vast reaches of the African interior. And succeeding generations acknowledge him as a legendary figure who dedicated his life to Africa and their people. That's why when he died, his heart was buried in Africa. His body is buried in Westminster Abbey. You see, you've got to understand this message that the Lord Jesus is giving in answer to Peter. The Lord is not seeking to motivate us to start giving up valuable things for him as if we were fulfilling some checklist that will fast-track us to spiritual glory. No, a thousand times no. Rather, what the Lord is saying through all of this passage, including the rich young ruler, is that any true sacrifice is only a sign of a heart that has already been given up to God. That's it. I think it is very well illustrated by the story of Abraham being asked to sacrifice his only son Isaac. And as he went up the mount and got the wood and the fire arranged and the boy lying there and the knife lifted above him, ready to plunge into his heart. That is what God asked him to do, was it not? And yet God was not wanting the death of Isaac. God was not wanting Abraham to sacrifice his only son. He promised him that he would have it. And from that young boy would come a great nation that would bless all nations. No, God shows us what his motivation was. As he cries out at that mountaintop, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. You see, God wanted to know what was in Abraham's heart. This was the great test of his faith. This is the great test of his devotion. He had failed so many before, but now God was wanting to find out whether he had his heart. You see, our motivation, if we have to give things up, should not be reward, but devotion. So there are no real sacrifices when you must give up things for Jesus if you've already given up your heart to Jesus, for he is worthy. The lamb that was slain is worthy to receive the glory. 
And yet, though reward should not be our motivation, there is, Jesus says, recompense of reward. This is very clear in uh, verse 30. Let's see verse 29 again. No man hath left house, brethren, sisters, father, mother, wife, children, lands, for my sake in the Gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time. That's important. Houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come. Eternal life. Now it seems to me that in verse 30 there's two types of reward mentioned. There is temporal reward and there is eternal reward. Let's deal with each of them. Temporal reward. What does this mean? That if we have lost these uh, things and people and possessions in our life, that we will receive a hundredfold now in this time. Now let it be emphatically said that what is being taught here is not the prosperity gospel that we, we hear uh, preached, particularly through satellite and cable television. Many of the very famous uh, charismatic preachers tend to be of this ilk. And they espouse to this theology that God desires us to have material prosperity. And those who have faith in him will have it, will have health, will have success in their business and relationships. Now, it is very interesting to note that our Lord Jesus, in all of these things that he mentions, never mentioned money. But what he does mention are material possessions and relationships. And what he is saying, it seems clear, is that any of these things, house, brothers, sisters, father or mother, wife, children, lands, that you lose in one society, for my sake in the Gospels, will be restored a hundredfold, by the way, that's 10,000% restored in the new society that God is creating by grace. That's what verse 30 is about. Now, this is not something new in Mark's gospel because the idea of a new family compensating for the loss of our own family we encountered in chapter 3 and verse 31 to 35 in the life of our Lord himself, the suffering servant. Mark three thirty-one, And we read that there... There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him, and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and mother." You see, what the Lord Jesus is talking about here now in verse 30 is a spiritual family. And we see this fulfilled in the Acts of the Apostles. In chapter 2 of Acts 41, verse 41, we read, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. 
And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Do you see it? Here is the outworking of what the Lord Jesus is talking about. That that whatever we lose in one society for his sake and the gospels will be restored a hundredfold, ten thousand percent in the new society that God is creating by grace. Now maybe you're doubting that this is the meaning of the passage. Well, note an omission in verse 30 from the list of things that the Lord Jesus implies that we may lose in verse 29. The omission is simply Father. Father is mentioned in verse 29, that we may have left Father. But Father is not mentioned in verse 30. It's omitted. And the simple and obvious reason for this is that there is a Father in our new spiritual family. And that is our Heavenly Father who unites us all together as the family of God. He is the head. And so what the Lord Jesus is saying here is regarding temporal reward now, if we lose any of these things, if we've lost a house, we've got hospitality in the homes of the Lord's people. And many servants of the Lord over the years have experienced that, including myself. If we've lost a brother or sisters, we will have new brothers and sisters in the family of God. If we've lost children, we will gain new children in the family of God. Campbell Morgan put it like this, one house gone, but a hundred doors are open. One brother in the flesh lost, but a thousand brothers in the spirit whose love is deeper and whose kinship profounder. And lands are mentioned here. And though we might lose lands for his sake in the Gospels, the nations can be won for the master, the heathen for thine inheritance, the Lord Jesus was told by God, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Wonderful. As any wonder, Bill Gaither, many years ago, penned the words from the door of an orphanage to the house of the king. No longer an outcast, a new song I sing. From rags unto riches, from the weak to the strong. I'm not worthy to be here, but praise God I belong. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Joint heirs with Jesus as we travel the sod. For I'm part of the family, the family of God. Oh, I don't know, person listening to this today, what you have lost for Christ's sake in the Gospels. But here and now, in this new community of grace in the church of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus is able to give you 10,000% more. The family of God. But please note, it would be very easy to miss it, at the end of this list of recompense in verse 30, the Lord mentions after children and lands, with persecutions. And you know, he's still talking here about reward, and it's almost as if he's including this as, uh, uh, as one of the privileges, that if we lose people, relationships, and possessions for Christ, one of the privileges is that we be persecuted and suffer for him. And you remember that that was the exact same outlook 
as the apostles in Acts chapter 5 and verse 41. And it says that the apostles departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. It's a privilege, he's saying. I think this implies that the foregoing of these things listed in verse 29 is not only applies to those who have let go of people and possessions to follow the Lord in service, but also it applies to those who suffer the loss of these things through persecution and suffering for the Lord. Now, for the Christians in Rome that we believe Mark initially was writing this gospel for, or who were reading this gospel at least, suffering was the normal Christian experience for them. And that's why Peter, interestingly, Peter in his epistle writes, 1 Peter 4, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Count it all joy, James says, when you enter into diverse temptations. Now I think it's obvious that that abolishes this prosperity teaching that we hear so often today. And it also takes away an interpretation from these verses any idea of a quid pro quo, uh, quid pro quo uh, a favor for a favor from God. If, if we give up this, he'll give, give us that. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That is, banish the thought of that. That's got nothing to do with this passage of Scripture. Now, I believe God blesses those who give, and, and the Bible does teach that. And there can be at times certain material possessions that come our way, but that is not what the Scripture is teaching. And we've got to get away from the motivation that Peter had. And that's what prosperity teaching uh, uh, betrays. Peter asked, what can I get out of it? I've given all this up, unlike the rich young ruler. What can I get out of it? You know what the answer the Lord gave him now? Let's get it. Here's what you get now, Peter. Here and now, a hundredfold in the blessings of God's family and persecution. Not not get much not not get much rating on cable or satellite uh, television. What do we get out of sacrifice for Christ? A hundredfold in blessings and God's family and persecution. You see, the Lord Jesus, and we've seen this very clearly from this Gospel of the Cross, never offered an easy way to anyone. Now, yes, praise God, we celebrate the gospel of grace by faith, which means to become a Christian, it costs you nothing. It is by faith alone. But to be a Christian, to live a Christian life following Christ in discipleship, it costs everything. And we're not thinking of the things that we give up. We're thinking of giving up ourselves. But the Lord Jesus did not just mention temporal reward at the end of verse 30. He mentions eternal reward. Now, let me be clear on this because we know that eternal life, the whole New Testament teaches that eternal life is a gift of God. It is not a reward. It's not something 
we gain or earn by our effort. And so we might ask them, why does the Lord Jesus add on here that, that if we give any of these things up, because we have given up our heart to the Lord, that we will receive as a reward in the world to come eternal life? That's what it seems to imply. Well, perhaps the thought is that part of the reward will be a greater capacity to enjoy eternal life in heaven. So it's not getting eternal life, but a greater capacity to enjoy it. And the New Testament does indicate in many places that there will be a gradation of rewards in heaven according to to how we have lived on earth. But perhaps the meaning might be more accurate when we consider that this term in the world to come is literally in the age to come and that often refers to the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ and reward is always central to that thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. So it may be indicating that according to how we have sacrificed for the Lord here and now, we will enjoy eternal life in the millennial blessings, in wonderful millennium blessings. So the reward in itself is not the eternal life as such, but how we enjoy the eternal life. But in all of this, let us not lose the point of this message. The Lord Jesus is saying, for my sake and the Gospels, we must be sure that our motivation is right. What is our motivation for living for Christ? Peter says we've given all this up. What do we get for it? Maybe there is a tone of self-pity. Everybody else is living on a pig's back and the Christian is suffering. And maybe I'm talking to people who are in lands where you are experiencing terrible persecution for your faith in Christ. The well-known industrialist of some years ago, Ariel Letourneau, used to say, if you give because it pays, it won't pay. If we sacrifice only to get reward, that reward will never come. Was this the reason why Peter was given verse 31? Was it directly to him? But many that are first shall be last and the last first. Was it a rebuke to Peter in this very area? Peter who was weighing up his own performance, measuring it to the rich young ruler? Was the Lord saying, Peter, the ultimate judgments are with God? And whilst many a man may stand well in the judgment of this world, or even the judgment of the church, or the judgment of himself, but God's evaluation, Peter, is very different. And yet verse 31, Many that are first shall be last, and the last first has a wonderful principle. And it really sums up this whole teaching very well. The Lord, I think, is saying, whatever it seems you have lost out on in this life, you will never lose out ultimately. That's the message. You can't lose if you've lost your heart to Jesus. You can't lose. And you see, the point is, reward is not measured on time, how much time you give to Jesus. Reward is not 
is not measured on how much money you give to Jesus, how many houses, lands, possessions, positions you give to Jesus, how much success you've had on his behalf, or the sacrifice of things, people, relationships. But reward is measured by the heart devotion you have to Jesus. All these other things follow after that. How is your heart devotion to the Lord Jesus? Does he have your heart? That's all he really wants. Sacrifice and offering. Thou wouldst not, but a broken and a contrite heart. That's what he wants. And so the Lord Jesus is saying to Peter as he comes pitifully, self-pityingly asking, Lord, look, behold, we have left all and to follow thee. Peter, you can't lose if you've lost your heart to me. Peter, understand this. Temporally, here and now, you'll receive a hundredfold in the new family of God and persecutions, that means glory. And in the age to come, the enjoyment of eternal life with millennial and eternal blessings. Truly, you can't lose if you are a servant of the suffering servant on the Calvary road where the suffering is before the glory and the cross before the crown. Let us pray. Father, We're greatly humbled because so often we are motivated for the wrong reasons in ministry and in Christian experience. Lord, God, forgive us. Sometimes we think that we are giving up things for you when we've given up very little, if anything. And the bottom line is if we've given up ourselves entirely to you and if we're crucified with Christ, we don't own anything and so we've nothing to lose. And yet whatever we may have lost in terms of this list that the Lord has mentioned, we can never lose if we've lost our heart to the Savior. Lord, help us to understand this. And help us to have that true spirit of the sacrificial servant who has given all and therefore can lose nothing. Whatever is gained for us, let us count it loss for Christ's sake. Let us hear the voice of our Master. For my sake and the Gospels go and tell redemption's story. His herald's answer be it so, and thine, Lord, all the glory. They preach his birth, his life, his cross, the love of his atonement, for whom they count the world but loss his Easter, his enthronement.
O God, help us to learn the lessons that so often it seems the disciples missed, and we we are no different. We have missed them too, Lord. Help us to be like Stud and Elliot and Livingstone, especially who said, I never made a sacrifice. I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not to talk when we remember the great sacrifice which your son, who left your right hand on high to give himself for us, We ought not talk of sacrifice. We ought not be motivated by reward, but by devotion. And yet, Father, we thank you that there is blessed temporal and eternal reward that we are not worthy of. But we say to you today, may the slain lamb receive the reward of his sacrifice and all the glory for he alone is worthy. Amen.